Let's turn in our Bibles to 1 Samuel, 1 Samuel 17. We'll be focusing on verse 26. is David's challenge to the people of Israel. Now the Philistines gathered their armies for battle, and they were gathered at Soko, which belongs to Judah, and encamped between Soko and Azekah in Ephes Damim. And Saul and the men of Israel were gathered and encamped in the valley of Elah, and drew up in line of battle against the Philistines. And the Philistines stood on the mountain on the one side. And Israel stood on the mountain on the other side, with a valley between them. And there came out from the camp of the Philistines a champion named Goliath of Gath, whose height was six cubits in a span. He had a helmet of bronze on his head, and he was armed with a coat of mail. And the weight of the coat was five thousand shekels of bronze. And he had bronze armor on his legs, and a javelin of bronze slung between his shoulders." The shaft of his spear was like a weaver's beam, and his spear's head weighed six hundred shekels of iron. And his shield-bearer went before him. He stood and shouted to the ranks of Israel, Why have you come out to drop for battle? Am I not a Philistine, and are you not servants of Saul? Choose a man for yourselves, and let him come down to me. If he is able to fight with me and kill me, then we will be your servants. But if you prevail against him and kill him, Then you shall be our servants and serve us. And heard these words of the Philistine, they were dismayed and greatly afraid. Now David was the son of an Ephrathite of Bethlehem in Judah named Jesse, who had eight sons. In the days of Saul, the man was already old and advanced in years. To him, Abinadab and the third Shammah. David was the youngest. The three oldest followed Saul. But David went back and forth from Saul to feed his father's sheep at Bethlehem. For forty days the Philistines came forward and took the Philistine came forward and took his loaves and carry them quickly to the camp to your brothers. Also take these ten cheeses to the commander of their thousand. See if meant. And David left the things in charge of the keeper of the baggage and ran to the ranks and went and greeted his brothers. As he talked with them, behold, the champion, the Philistine of Gath, Goliath by name, came up out of the ranks of the Philistines and spoke the same words as before. And David heard him. All the men of Israel, when they saw the man, fled from him and were much afraid. And the men of Israel said, Have you seen this man who has come up? Surely he has come up to defy Israel. And the king will enrich the man who kills him with great riches, and will give him his daughter and make his father's house free in Israel. And David said to the men who stood by him, What shall be done for the man who kills this Philistine and takes away the reproach from Israel? For who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? And the people answered him in the same way, So shall it be done to the man who kills him. Now Eliab, his eldest brother, heard what, when he spoke to the men. And Eliab's anger was kindled against David, and he said, Why have you come down, and with whom have you left those few sheep in the wilderness? I know your presumption and the evil of your heart, for you have come down to see the battle. And David said, What have I done now? Was it not but a word? And he turned away from him toward another, and spoke in the same way. And the people answered him as before. When the words that David spoke were heard, they repeated them before Saul, and he sent for him. And David said to Saul, Let no man's heart fail because of him. Your servant will go and fight with this Philistine. 
And Saul said to David, You are not able to go against this Philistine to fight with him, for you are but a youth, and, you, and he has been a man of war from his youth. But David said to Saul, Your servant used to keep sheep for his father, and when there came a lion or a bear and took a lamb from the flock, I went after him and struck him and delivered it out of his mouth. And if he arose against me, I caught him by his beard and struck him and killed him. Your servant has struck down both lions and bears, and this uncircumcised Philistine shall be like one of them, for he has defied the armies of the living God. And David said, The Lord who delivered me from the paw of the lion and the paw of the bear will deliver me from the hand of the Philistine. And Saul said to David, Go, and the Lord be with you. Then Saul clothed David with his armor. He put a helmet of bronze on his head and clothed him with a coat of mail, and David strapped his sword over his armor. And he tried in vain to go, for he had not tested them. Then David said to Saul, I cannot go with these, for I have not tested them. So David put them off. Then he took his staff in his hand and chose five smooth stones from the brook and put them in his shepherd's pouch. His sling was in his hand, and he approached the Philistine. And the Philistine moved forward and came near to David with his shield-bearer in front of him. And when the Philistine looked and saw David, he disdained him, for he was but a youth, ruddy and handsome in appearance. And the Philistine said to David, Am I a dog that you come to me with sticks? And the Philistine cursed David by his gods. The Philistine said to David, Come to me and I will give your flesh to the birds of the air and to the beasts of the field. Then David said to the Philistine, You come to me with a sword and with a spear and with a javelin, but I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the army of Israel, whom you have defied. This day the Lord will deliver you into my hand, and I will strike you down and cut off your head, and I will give the dead bodies of the host of the Philistines this day to the birds of the air and to the wild beasts of the earth, that all the earth may know that there is a God in Israel, and that all this assembly may know that the Lord saves not with sword and spear, for the battle is the Lord's, and he will give you into our hand. When the Philistines, when the Philistine arose and came and drew near to meet David, David ran quickly toward the battle line to meet the Philistine. And David put his hand in his bag and took out a stone and slung it and struck the Philistine on his forehead. The stone sank into his forehead and he fell with his face to the ground. So David prevailed over the Philistine with a sling and with a stone and struck the Philistine and killed him. There was no sword in the hand of David. Then David ran and stood over the Philistine and took his sword and drew it from its sheath and killed him and cut off his head with it. When the Philistines saw that their champion was dead, they fled. And the men of Israel and Judah rose with a shout and pursued the Philistines as far as Gath and the gates of Ekron, so that the wounded Philistines fell on the way from Sharim as far as Gath and Ekron. And the people of Israel came back from chasing the Philistines, and they plundered their camp. And David took the head of the Philistine and brought it to Jerusalem, but he put his armor in his tent. As soon as Saul, as Saul saw David go out against the Philistine, he said to Abner, the commander of the armor, army, Abner, whose son is this youth? And Abner said, As your soul lives, O king, I do not know. And the king said, Inquire whose son the boy is. And as soon as David returned from striking down of the Philistine, Abner took him and brought him before Saul with the head of the Philistine in his hand. And Saul said to him, Whose son are you, young man? And David answered, I am the son of your servant Jesse, the Bethlehemite. So far, the reading of God's word. And we'll be focusing on verse 26. And David said to the man who stood by him, What shall be done for the man who kills this Philistine and takes away the reproach from Israel? 
For who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? Let's hear the uh, word of the Lord. Beloved in the Lord, there are two... there are two temptations that are, that are always there in approaching the external pressures of this world. One is to be fearful and apathetic in response to the mocking of this world. And the other is to be foolhardy or revolutionary, to act without God. And both of those share a similar problem, a focus on the things of this world rather than the things of heaven. Neither of these looks for the armor of God. As we approach 1 Samuel 17, we'll be focusing on that first failing, the fear and apathy, because that's really what this passage is all about. Although we will certainly see the second failing behind and around the narrative that we see here as well. The question David asked in verse 26, for who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God, should bother us. For the church has too often stood shamefaced before the challenges of her enemies rather than confident in the truth of God. And perhaps too, especially since this is a young man, Perhaps, too, this is a good for the young men among us to hear. The glory of the young man is his strength, says the Proverbs. Are you ready to use that strength for the sake of the church in defense against mocking giants? It's a question we need to ask. Does God call us to this work of guardianship? I bring you the word of the Lord under the theme... God empowers us to stand against mocking giants. We'll see Goliath's armor, Saul's armor, and David's armor. The text invites us to compare those since there's so much focus on the different armor that the people wear. Yeah, we're not merely told that a giant warrior from among the Philistines comes forward to challenge Israel. Instead, we're given full details on his armor. This isn't just some giant. This is an experienced warrior. David's challenge to the men of Israel who are around him must be understood in this context. Goliath is a man who is prepared prepared for war. As Saul later says, a man who has known the ways of war from his youth. You need good armor to go into battle. That's just good sense. You don't go into battle without proper equipment. And bad equipment can make your side lose. When World War I began, the Germans were all issued steel helmets. The average German soldier all had steel helmets. They were ready for modern warfare. The British and the French did not begin with steel helmets. Considering the type of warfare that they were to fight, where projectiles were constantly in the air, the steel helmets, though not perfect in their protection, were definitely helpful for survival rates. It only took a few months in the field for the French and later the British to begin issuing steel helmets. 
From a, from a human perspective, equipment is very important. The impression we get of Goliath is that he has the best military equipment available to a warrior from the 10th century BC. He has a helmet, a coat of mail, and bronze armor protecting his legs. The coat of mail was of the best technology available at the time. It was made of small scales, bronze scales, that were all sewn into a leather jerkin so that they overlapped one another. It would have had the effect of a, a snake scales or fish scales. Weighed in pounds, it was about 125 pounds. The text especially notes the spear that Goliath carries. The shaft was like a weaver's beam. And the head is the weight of 600 shekels of iron. 15 pounds. 15 pounds. If you've been to the gym and you lift the 15-pound weight, you get a feeling of what that's, that's like. And he has it at the end of his spear. You can imagine that that would do some damage to your enemies. Besides, of course... He's nine and a half feet tall. It's pretty frightening. Here's a man nine and a half feet tall, plus heavily armored with top-notch battle equipment. You would be stupid to accept the challenge of such man, a man. You would be asking for death. Even if you're an experienced warrior, just the equipment of this man and the size of this man would crush you. His armor is crafted with the best of worldly wisdom. He has in his mind the best of worldly wisdom for war. David arrives on the scene to see the Israelite army cowed by the challenge of this warrior. He is challenging the army of Israel for a champion to fight in single combat. It was quite common at that time to begin a war with contests of champions from either army. And this was seen as a test among the people of who the gods favored or whose god was more powerful. This helps us understand why David is so moved by Goliath's challenge to Israel. He is not only challenging Israel's strength, not even challenging God's divine favor toward Israel, He's representing the challenge of the Philistine gods to Israel's God. That's why David responds to Goliath's challenge with such wonder. He asks, what shall be done for the man who kills this Philistine and takes away the reproach, reproach from Israel? And he's, he's actually just received that information, so he knows the answer. He's, it's that question, what shall be done for the man who kills this Philistine? It's incredulous. He's wondering why nobody has taken up this challenge. He sees the magnificence of what is offered to the warrior who takes on Goliath. Question is, the question asks, nobody's taken up their, uh, that offer against a man who is defying God's army? If a man killed Goliath, he would basically become on the top, one of the top princes of Israel. This is a wonderful prize to the level. He may wonder what King Saul, the former great champion of Israel, is doing. We're told the earlier considered this type of fighting a younger man's job. 
But then why isn't the army under Saul taking inspiration from their great champion? Saul, in a sense, has has lost his ability to inspire the armies of Israel. Another story that may play into David's wonder here is Israel's history in coming to the land of Canaan. In the, in the wilderness, the men of Israel refused to spy out the land and refused to go in because of the giants. Here's another giant that is challenging the people of Israel. And like they were in the wilderness, Israel is cowed. They don't believe in God's promise that they can take the land. It was David's ancestor, Caleb, who was one of the people to to speak up against the Israelites who are ready to give up the promises that that they have been given. So David's confident. How do we have that confidence when we approach those who are armored with worldly wisdom? We're not Israel. We don't have a promise that we will defeat our physical enemies in physical warfare like David does. However, we do have a prom- the promise that Christ, the conqueror, the one who conquered Satan, is with us. And he has promised to be with us in our struggle with the lies that gain prevalence in our own age. We don't need to be cowed to rest the enemies of the church today. As a minion of Jesus Christ. Saul was a shepherd who failed to do this. Kings are shepherds in the Old Testament. David begins his work of shepherding people here. He is prisoners in the mission that our mission does not have. We will not literally slay giants like David does in the strictest literal sense. David does that because that is clearly David's mission. He is called to be the king of Israel. He is part of a people who have been promised the land, who have been told to not fear giants. Our boldness must be directed toward the mission of the church, the mission of Christ. But first, let's ask another question. Why did God? And that brings us to our next point, Saul's armor. The Proverbs say, The glory of the young man is his strength. The glory of the old man is his gray hair. The young man is quick to act, to become angry, to fight. The old man has experience. He has wisdom signified by his gray hair to provide to the young man. And ideally, the young man and the old man sharpen each other. The old man has the wisdom to direct the young man's strength toward what is useful. In that sense, David's enthusiasm to defend the honor of Israel needs to be tested. Is it just a desire for his own glory? Or does it come from a deep desire for God? His older brother Eliab calls him out, basically saying, you're just a kid who wanted to see the battle. And David simply ignores the comment. He knows his own heart. He is confident that he is doing this for the honor of God. Eliab's comment says more about himself, his his own inability 
to fearlessly contest with this giant rather than David's pride. It's his own apathy, his own cowed state. David's words bring him before the king himself. David announces that he will fight the giant for Saul. Saul challenges him again. You are but a youth. And just a note, Youth doesn't necessarily mean 15 or 16. David could have easily been in his early 20s. You are but a youth, but he has been a man of war from his youth. And David ably defends himself. I've defended my sheep from the bear and the lion, and the Philistine will be like the bear and the lion. Notice the shepherd imagery here again. As we've said, the king is also known as a shepherd, and the officers of the church are known as shepherds. They are to protect the church from the giants that threaten the church. David has proved himself as a shepherd in the little things. So Saul is willing to listen and he offers David his armor. Is this the wise older man providing the younger man what he needs to approach the enemy? It could look like that. And maybe Saul imagines that that's what he's doing for the young David. He's giving him a chance to fight against this Goliath. He is giving him his own armor, which, like Goliath's, would be the best equipment out there. We read the list. A helmet of bronze, a coat of mail, and a sword. But the armor doesn't fit. David tries to go in them, but they sit awkwardly on his body. They don't sit right. Think about when you're trying to fit, if you've ever gone backpacking before, it takes a bit to get used to that extra weight on the back of your body. Your body needs to, you need to almost test it in order to walk for about 10 hours with a pack on your back. Having to, and it's the same with Saul's armor. Armor. Armor is heavy. Think of Goliath's armor, 125 pounds, 15 pounds on the top of that spear, plus everything else that's on his body. Even today, Marines go with 60 to 100 pounds of gear strapped to their bodies. The armor is also made for Saul, who's a full-grown man, and David, whose shoulders have not necessarily filled out yet. He fits uneasily in Saul's armor. But there, there's more going on here than just a bad fit. Saul, Saul is looking back at a life of failure, and in many ways the opposite of the failure that he is facing now. In the past, he has been overconfident in his own strength and his own wisdom. We can think of the action that lost him the hope of dynasty, God said, you're going to be the last one to rule of your dynasty over Israel. He was waiting for Samuel to sacrifice before he attacked the Philistines. Samuel had told him, I must give the sacrifice before you attack the Philistines. But he goes ahead and makes his own sacrifice. He does not obey God through the word of Samuel and wait. 
Later, the Lord completely rejects Saul when he chooses to preserve the Amalekite king and the Amalekite livestock, again, based on his own wisdom. It's a type of overzealousness, or you might even call it a false zeal. That's why the armor is, in a sense, another test for David. Will he go into battle trusting in his own strength, in his own hand, his own wisdom? Or will he wait on God? Will he fear the giant so much that he will rely on Saul's armor, Saul's way of kingship, in order to slay the giant? Maybe even now, Saul is waiting for a return of the Spirit of God, which empowered his early days of kingship. The great armor that he shares with David becomes a symbol of his reliance on earthly wisdom. And he's even lost that. He should be able to understand that David, not used to the regular armor of the, armor, of the army, would not be able to fight on that, fight in it. This type of attitude can happen more often, where an older generation can be overzealous or, or as we said, have false zeal, impatient, overconfident in their own abilities or their own opinions. We could even add the problem of unconfessed sin in their lives. And later, when that is revealed, it makes them frozen in inaction when new giants challenge the people of God. That malaise is not limited to the leaders, but often spreads to the whole people. Right? That's what happens here in this passage. Saul's failures, Saul's state of fear becomes the state of his whole armor, army. But look at God's mercy here. God does provide a new king. David prefigures our Lord Jesus Christ's work here, defending the garden of God against the giant dressed in scaly, serpent-like armor. He does not dress like the serpent in order to defeat the serpent. It even says it in our text. He says to the giant that all this assembly may know that the Lord saves not with sword and spear, for the battle is the Lord's, and he will give you into our hand. He gives us a way in our fight in the serpent in Christ. If we look at the situation from an earthly point of view, there is something outside at work here. God is empowering David to stand against the giant. Brothers and sisters, we have our Lord Jesus Christ and his spirit. If we see ourselves in Saul, let us not merely accept that sad fate. Let us actively seek the Spirit so that we may regain some of that confidence in the mission of Jesus Christ. Let us truly repent of our sins and put them on his cross. Remember that that is, is what gives us fullness of life and the spirit of power which emboldens us in fighting the powers and principalities of this world. And even if we are unable to fully regain that confidence, 
Sin does have its consequences on our flesh or a former position. It may be that if Saul had repented, he would have simply stepped aside to let David take the throne. Even if those things are true, let us encourage the new generation to take up that firmness of David, that confidence we see in this young man as he takes on the monsters that attack the flock of his own day. And that brings us to our last point, David's armor. There are things that matter more than having the best armor. One of those is that you use it well. David has the wisdom to understand that his sling is a far more effective weapon for him than the armor that Saul offers. There's a wisdom here for us. Sometimes we need to, through faith, fight with weapons that God has given us personally rather than seeking after what is not useful to us. We also see in David a courage and a conviction of the right, a faith that he is doing the right thing because he trusts God's promises. That's deeply needed in any battle. Good equipment only does so much. A stout and courageous heart is deeply important for the day of battle. But there's a far more important armor armor that David needs as he goes into the battle against the Philistine. And we've alluded to it many times already. He needs to go out armored with the Lord's armor, the helmet of salvation, and the sword of the Spirit. We can see that armor make an appearance as David approaches the Philistine. He receives the Philistine's taunts with his own taunts. You come to me with a sword and with a spear and with a javelin, but I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. This day the Lord will deliver you into my hand, and I will strike you down and cut off your head. David surrounds himself with the Lord's strength. That's what enables him to walk into the field. No armor. Goliath could, through his spear with that 15-pound head, he could pulverize, obliterate David. But David comes in the name of the Lord. The courage of David, the wisdom of David in choosing his armor are both grounded in the faith of David. He sees a giant that mocks God's people. He knows that a thing like this cannot stand because the one who the giant is actually mocking is the Lord of this people. That's what gives David the confidence to stand. God rewards him for his confidence. He kills the giant with a stone and a sling and cuts off the giant's head with the giant's own sword. This is written to give us assurance in our war against the lies that control our own age. David lived by faith. In King Jesus, we also live by faith. Jesus, the ultimate giant slayer, the conqueror of the dragon, and he shares his armor for our battle so that we too may be bold like David. We are to have confidence, particularly in the threats to those things that belong to the mission of the church. God wants the word to be preached, the sacraments to be administered, the psalms to be sung, the fellowship to increase. God has promised to be with us in all of this. 
We must, of course, be careful in putting on our armor that we do not depend on the things of this world, particularly that we do not use lies and violence to defeat the kingdom of lies and violence. That's why Paul commends that we prepare with prayer. That's why we have multiple examples of strength through weakness. This is why we have the example of blessing. The people of God bless in response to persecution. Because of Christ, we fight our battles in a different way than Joshua and David did. However, we need the same courage and boldness. Let me once again single out the young men here. God has particularly called men to be the shepherds of his people because they are called to be guardians of the bride of Christ. They're called to challenge the giants that mock the church. They're called to defend her. The church needs more guardians, more warriors to carry out the work of the kingdom of God. The glory of the young man is his strength, his willingness to put his hand to the struggle without turning back. The church is not going to be advanced through political parties. And in saying this, I don't disparage those who labor for the church in those parties. The church will not be advanced through academics. Again, I don't disparage those who labor in academia. The church will be advanced through the continual work of reconciliation to God through word, sacrament, and prayer. It doesn't look as obviously glorious as knocking down a giant with a sling and a stone. But in many ways, it's a greater glory. For as Paul says, however weak he and his colleagues might personally look, look the kingdom of God does not consist in talk, but in power. A far greater power than David experienced. Or as Paul says later, the sufferings of this earth are not to be compared with the weight of glory we will have in the future. So I can't say what the future holds. All I can say is that God loves to put his people in lopsided situations that reflect the calling of his son. He's asking, who are you willing to trust? We should be willing to boldly act in God's name, provided, of course, that, we are, that they are according to the promises of God, that our actions are according to the promise of God. Let us always act so that we, with sincerity of heart, say, I come in the name of the Lord of hosts, Jesus Christ, whom you have defied. All glory be to God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. Amen. Let's sing in response from Psalm 96. Psalm 96, verses 6, 7, and 8.